I'm Andrew. And I'm Spencer. And you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today, we'll be speaking with the Harlem-based artist Sanford Biggers, who works across film and video, installation, sculpture, music, and performance. Also an arts educator, Sanford has taught at the Virginia Commonwealth University, as well as at Harvard and Columbia. Sanford has exhibited his work widely, including at the Studio Museum in Harlem, the Tate Modern in London, and at the Whitney Biennial. His exhibition Code Switch opens this fall at the Bronx Museum of the Arts, and earlier this month he had a flag artwork on display at Rockefeller Center. At a time when everything is so nuanced and deeply layered, and, well, just plain confusing, we really need more thinkers who can articulate the state of things the way Sanford does We're really excited to have him on today. Let's get him on the line. Hi, Sanford. Welcome to At A Distance. It's so great to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. What's at the top of your mind right now? Wow. Personally, I'm a little groggy because I had a, a bout of insomnia last night. <laughs> so I'm um, trying to get my mind to a reboot very quickly. Beyond that, I'm trying to find a way to not look at my newsfeed so much. It's mm. become <laughs> a really horrible sort of twitch. I don't even do social media all that much. So I'm right there on my newsfeed, uh, you know, and it does nothing but cause anxiety. <laughs> you know, sometimes there's some decent information, but the rest of it is just the horror story, the train wreck that is right now. Mm. How have you been thinking about the pandemic and, and what are your feelings in general right now about New York City beginning to open back up, about the country trying to open back up? You know, I've been obviously, like most of us, paying very close attention to it. But um, I also happen to have been in Italy in February. Oh, So I sort of saw the writing on the wall to a degree. Hmm. And I have to say, our response in total has been actually sort of embarrassing. And it's really brought out a lot of not only our in- inequities, but our inability to see beyond ourselves. Mm-hmm. And it's sadly a little bit discouraging, um, surprising. And we'll see how this next, I don't want to say next phase, because theoretically we're not in the next phase yet, but as the first phase keeps moving through the country to see if there's any difference in response. But so far it's been really discouraging. Mm -hmm. I wanted to bring up the idea of interconnectedness. It's such a big part of your work and ask you how you're thinking about it in this context of, of COVID-19 with our relationship to nature and everything around us. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess the reason I feel that it's discouraging because, because it seems like this should be basically a nonpartisan issue that this would be a moment to say, you know what, throw all those differences uh, to the side because Mm -hmm. there's a bigger issue at hand that only will really get better if we worked as a unified force. And we have an inability to do that. Mm. And nonetheless, we still are interconnected. So for the good, the bad, and the ugly, we are still interconnected. So that just makes all of this, this situation become more prolonged and protracted because of the inability for people to sort of say, you know what, let's just stop this thing as best we can and then deal with the repercussions that come from that. Mm. But as schools are about to supposedly open up and having a young daughter and Mm. sort of watching all of that, it's also sort of interesting to see the interconnectedness of people there and how 
we're looking at various options. Do we go back to school? Do we find a pod? Do we find somebody close by that can take a cluster of kids and provide some type of services? I mean, she's young enough where she's not really fully in school yet, so it's more like preschool. So, mm. And it's interesting to watch how um, people are communicating via, once again, social media and absorbing media right now and the effect that it's having in the sort of multiple echo chambers and for the amount of people that we can reach just by pressing a couple of buttons on our phone, it mm -hmm. still seems somehow that we are in our own echo chambers and that the view is quite narrow. Mm. Yeah, there's very little sort of interconnected conversation happening right now. We're not really learning to listen to the other side. Uh, and that, that, that also is, is coming up in conversations around cancel culture right now. People are actually afraid to say their ideas. That's what Barry Weiss has been going on about the last couple of weeks. I'm kind of curious about that, what, what you're thinking about in terms of this very, very, very small bubbling response to cancel culture that's starting. Well, I think it's sort of inevitable, just like I think cancel culture itself was inevitable. It's been good for some reasons. You know, yeah. I think the abuses towards people of color, the abuses towards women very specifically, that being a platform to get that information out to people, I think has been effective in some ways mm. and necessary. And sadly, it's been necessary because so many of these people who have been decrying all the uh, abuses that have been happening to them have not been taken seriously or have not been given the respect of just listening and trying to address the problems as they happen. They, there's just a deniability that comes without having that large public platform to, to vent these atrocities. Mm. And then there's also the backlash, the initial backlash. Once you have this, these devices and these platforms that allow people to speak, the first thing they're going to do is obviously say how they feel, and then they're going to use that as, I don't want to say weaponized, because that's sort of a more negative connotation in, in my mind, but to use it as a practical way of trying to uh, enact justice. Yeah. And I think it has been effective in some ways on that. But then there's the further extreme where it becomes, you know, what we're talking about is cancel culture and a sort of horde mentality that is expressed literally by likes, dislikes and unfollows and, you know, no real engagement at all. Yeah. And the phenomenon that's also problematic is that because of these echo chambers, everyone is allowed to speak, but no one is really listening. Yeah. So we become more insular and more egocentric. And I am positive that that can't be a good thing in the long run. <laughs> I wanted to ask about um, the FLAG project, mm -hmm. the installation currently at Rockefeller Center that you're involved in. What does your flag depict? And um, did this get you thinking about the meaning of sort of nationality and borders and what, what flag symbols are about? So the flag that I designed actually is sort of a remixing a sculpture that I did many, many years ago called Lotus, which yeah. uh, appears to be a lotus blossom, actually. Or even, it can almost look like the iris of, of your eye. And the closer you get to see the details of those, uh, the petals on the lotus blossom, they're actually cross-sections of slave ships. So it's a very seductive image at first, but then it becomes almost repulsive once you realize what's being depicted. And these diagrams were derived from um, slaving manuals of how to mm -hmm. best pack human cargo. So I use that sort of as a rising sun or sort of like um, a planetary object on the flag and it's depicted in green and then there's a black and a red sort of horizon line and then a white star in the upper right corner of the flag 
which represents the North Star, mm. which you know has all kinds of mythological uh, readings. But in this specific case, I'm thinking largely of the North Star as it guided Harriet Tubman and many of the uh, riders of the Underground Railroad as mm. they were seeking freedom from the South. So fascinating that you chose the lotus flower, which emerges often from the mud. Well, there's that as well. So there's this transcendent nature of the lotus that sort of rises from the muck and mire and becomes this beautiful object that has been, you know, used as a spiritual symbol by many different cultures, Buddhism specifically. But yeah, it's transformative. And so looking at this history in Northern America as throughout the trials and tribulations that have, um, you know, Africans and African-Americans have experienced that there is transcendence on the other side. Mm, Brilliant. You spent a couple of years teaching English in Japan Mm -hmm. and have long been interested in the country, engaged with Buddhism. Meditation and improvisation are central to your practice and mindset. Could you talk about how you engage both through your work, how how you draw from these? Yes. I'd say over the last 20 years or so, if you were to look at my work through a Buddhist lens or my use of Buddhism, uh, the symbol and even some of the meditative notions in my process, mm-hmm. you would see a very strong through line, even including Lotus that we just talked about. I often talk about that Lotus as a mandala. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the early works I did when I came to New York City were making dance floors that were basically crafted to look like mandalas and then having break dances perform on them and their circular motions echoing the mandala, but also as tapping into the history of circular movement as a form of meditation and transcendence. So I think that approach really permeates most of my work. I usually find even, you know, the highly politically charged work I've done. I'm also not just trying to comment on the politics of the moment or, you know, past politics, but also find transcendence through them, sort of putting out the problem as it were, and finding a way to move beyond that through symbols or through the appreciation or at least even the knowledge of that history because sadly most of us don't know many of these important historical events Mm. that have happened Mm. you know like the details of the middle passage and so on Mm. connected to that kind of what's your approach to kind of slowness and and your your thoughts on speed in your life and your work and and how the two connect (laughs) it's really funny um Yesterday, I was just writing notes and I was getting a little stuck in my head. And I just wrote on a piece of paper, I just wrote, go slow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, something that I think about often, especially living in New York City where, you know, you're working and living and thinking at a breakneck speed every day. And it's just increasing and increasing before the pandemic hit. And once the pandemic hit, it slowed, it forced everything to slow down it forced people to slow down. And as horrible as it's been for many people, I think there's also, this is a moment for reflection, you know, and I think we still should be in that moment of reflection. A lot of people spoke about that months ago as if that reflection were already over. But Mm -hmm. the notion of going slow is that it's constant reflection and that we have to realign ourselves with what the cosmos, with the planet, what the environment, you know, is actually saying. This thing is sort of bigger than us. This is literally bigger Mm -hmm. than us. And I watch the debates and conversation about it as if this was something we can control and the finger pointing and the blaming. Whereas, once again, I think that's an antiquated notion. It's not really about who did what. It's about what are we going to do mm-hmm. moving forward, you know. So that takes reflection and that takes time, it takes slowness. Mm. Your upcoming exhibition at the Bronx Museum is titled Code Switch, a reference to the idea of code switching. 
Could you share with the listeners and with us what code switching is and why you chose that as the title of your show? Yeah, so code switching is a notion that many people I'm sure are familiar with, even if they don't know by name, is basically having to switch degrees of their behavior or their engagement with other people depending on various situations. So for mm -hmm. example, if I'm going for a job interview, I put on a suit and tie, I show a certain side of my persona, my character, mm -hmm. my, who I am. And then when I'm back on the street, I'm uptown, I'm in Harlem and I'm seeing friends on the street, I relax, I'm in a different mode. Or if I'm with my parents-in-law, I might have a different mode. It's not that I'm a different person, but I'm affording that other person a certain amount of respect or deference or strategically figuring out how I can minimize any negative uh, things happening to me. So often when we talk about code switching, minorities, people of color, women also have to code switch for survival. Mm -hmm. I call the collection of paintings and quilt-based artworks that are in this show the Codex series. And that is because as I've been painting and using antique quilts, I've been appreciating the idea that there are sometimes embedded codes already in those quilts. Mm. So when I come in and I do my interventions on them, I consider myself adding yet another layer of code. And for someone to read these artworks in the future, they are essentially getting a codex, a way of deciphering aspects of American culture through the original quilts, my interventions on the quilts, and their context of reading those quilts. Mm. So with all that combined together, the name of the show became Code Switch, because these works are code switching on certain levels. They are drawings, they're paintings, they're sculptural, they're craft, they're high art, they are Americana, they are largely made by groups of women and then intervened by a male, you know, so there's all kinds of code switching going on in the pieces. Mm. And then the titles often even further complicate some of those reads. Mm. And they contain a binary language of on or off, whether the thread is below or above the surface. It's so interesting. Mm -hmm. Could you elaborate a little bit on your choice for these mediums? You've been working in quilts for a long time. Yeah, it really wasn't on my radar as something that was going to be a long-term project. I initially engaged quilts around 2009 when I was doing a project in Philadelphia called Hidden Cities. Hmm. And I, along with other artists, were asked to come to Philadelphia and reimagine historical locations that had sort of gone into disrepair and had been forgotten. And I did a project at the Mother Bethel Church, which is the oldest Black-owned piece of uh, real estate, apparently, in the U.S. Mm. And at that church, which was also a stop along the Underground Railroad, I saw a small exhibition of quilts downstairs. And I was initially interested in the stained glass windows of the church. But when I saw the quilts, they started to resonate even more with me. And they also had, you know, patterns and lots of colors and so on. So aesthetically, there was a similarity to the stained glass. Mm. But there was a familiarity with the quilts that I thought was interesting to mine. So I did a project with um, existing quilts throughout the church, and then I did some interventions on two or three of them. And then a few years later, you know, I'd been toying around with some quilts in my studio after that project for a little bit. But I had a studio visit where a woman afterwards pulled me aside and said that she used to collect and sell quilts and had, they were in her closet being moth-ridden, and she offered me like 30 quilts. Mm. And it turns out that she's a descendant of Andrew Jackson, and she was well aware of sort of the politics and, let's say, the idea of 
doing graffiti basically on quilts, but at the same time beautifying, embellishing them or defacing them. Either way, she thought it was sort of an interesting historical rub to this, the narrative of quilts being such a piece of Americana. Right. So uh, that's how they started. But throughout the years, they've just, <laughs> I keep making them because I <laughs> keep getting more quilts. People donate quilts to me. I, I now have an eye for them. I search various websites for them. I get gifted quilts. I buy quilts. And they've become a really interesting way to sort of relearn art history <laughs> and design history and craft history. Mm. So they just keep going on and on and on because I always find something new to do with them. Your work is constantly taking stock of past and present and, as you've put it, rewriting history, as in R-I-G-H-T. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that rewriting history idea and, and how it extends out of these quilts and, and just your larger body of work? Yes, yes, definitely. And it's so funny. I think right now, contextually, is a good time to talk about this uh, because when I was growing up, I had a dual education. I had the education I was getting from the schools I went to then I was getting an auxiliary education at home because most of these schools in the U.S. do not teach. They don't take a deep dive into African-American culture. They don't take a deep dive into any history beyond basically sort of WASP male history, realistically yeah. speaking. So I would learn about Malcolm X and uh, <laughs> the SLA and Black Panthers and George Washington Carver and so on, so on at home. And as a result of that, I started painting and depicting images of some of these people I was learning when I was in my high school art classes. Mm. So, you know, I do a picture of Harry Tubman and kids would ask, I went to a mixed school. So people were like, who is that? I'm like, Harry Tubman, who's Harry Tubman? Oh, well, let me tell you. And so it ended up being a way of educating some people about some, you know, very important figures that were not being covered in school. So um, that sort of started this notion of rewriting history. And as I got deeper into my practice as an artist, I've started to find ways to do that in more complicated and diffuse means. But often there are various levels in reading any of my projects, whether it be the quilts or the BAM series with the bronze sculptures or even the marble works that I'm doing now, mm. that there's layers beyond the aesthetic and the art historical that are also at play. And once again, that speaks to a larger practice of code switching in all of my work. So even when we talked about those mandalas, those mandalas, I have breakdancers on them and you would wonder what those connections are. But there is a connection when you start thinking of whirling dervishes and, and various spiritual means by circular motions mm -hmm. where breakdancing is in that lineage, I think. Right. Your works are communicating histories, allegories, rituals. Mm -hmm. Sacred geometry is a big part of this. Could you share more about your thinking around sacred geometry and also maybe even first share with the listeners what sacred geometry is? Well, sacred geometry means a lot of things to different people, but um, where I became interested in it is learning that in some of the early Islamic cultures that rather than depicting Allah or depicting the most powerful in the essences of the universe, there was ways to do that through geometry. Mm -hmm. And even the process of making complicated geometry was a way of giving homage and praise to the highest. And I thought that was extremely poetic. And also not wanting to do straight portraiture or depicting anything specifically, you know, an individual specifically, I found that geometry, if there was a way to do that, to exalt oneself through geometry, I think is actually a very noble pursuit. Um, and I think even the quilts 
fall into that logic for me is that you mm. have these geometric patterns there are done in almost a ritual setting with uh, groups of people together weaving and cutting and pasting and scrapping and mm. so on and then more personally um, i'm related to john biggers john biggers uh, was my cousin but he was also a very popular painter and muralist in north america and he took a trip in 1957 to Ghana where he started studying African textiles. And he got very invested in, once again, the pattern and the geometry of those works and integrating that into his painting. So when he came back to the US, he had a combination of sort of narrative, Afrocentric portraiture and depictions of people, also with this interlaced geometry behind in the, in the architects and compositions of his paintings. Mm. And so I almost consider myself a descendant of that, that school of research by using the quilts, which is a bit more abstracted than his approach, but it's also using that same, some of those same ideas. The mandalas too, obviously, are related to sacred geometry as well. I wanted to ask you a bit about American symbolism, which you've explored and you have a strong interest in. What sort of contemporary symbols have you been paying attention to lately? Are there things, you know, like the MAGA hat? Are there things that you've been looking at that are drawing your attention? Yeah, the MAGA hat is one. It's a little fresh for me. Uh, I like things to um, have a little age on them first. That's a little too <laughs> fresh. I'm still <laughs> marinating on that one. But uh, flags, yeah. for sure. American flags, the iterations of American flags, because as you know, there's been several iterations of it as you know, some more states become part of the union. Civil rights imagery has been one. Music imagery, song imagery. So there's the symbols, but there's also the history too. Yeah. Sometimes I think my job is to f make the symbol for the history as opposed to taking symbols that already exist. Mm. So, for example, like the Gina 6 incident that happened um, in Gina, Louisiana, around 2008, 2009. And I don't want to go too deep into that story, but people could look that up on their own, Gina, Louisiana, J-E-N-A. From that incident, I created the piece Blossom, which is the, the tree that's coming out of the piano. Mm -hmm. So for me, that was a, an opportunity to create a symbol or create an object based off of the history as opposed to going into already existing American symbolism. Right. But in that case, I use a piano and a tree. And the tree, of course, has roots as a symbol, no pun intended, as a symbol in many different cultures. But I want to utilize it in this case to make a duplicitous type of um, imagery so that the tree references where people get lynched, but at the same time, the tree references where the Buddha finds enlightenment. So once again, there's this dichotomous transcendence in the symbols. And sorry, I, I don't want you to go too far on that before you talk about how you had also created this this arrangement of, of strange fruit. Yes. And how your, your involvement in music was a big part of that. So I'd love for you to just expand on that a bit more. Well, that was a really good segue because that is also an American symbol is the song Strange Fruit. And I know most people would consider that a symbol because it is part of like the American songbook and because it's Billie Holiday's basically dirge to um, lynching, yeah. but also it was made, written by Abe Mirapool, who was a Jewish school teacher, communist living in New York, who tried to pitch that song to tons of people. He was a, one of the Tin Pan Alley com composers and had a lot of songs out with people. Tried to pitch that to tons of people and nobody would take it. And then Billie Holiday heard it and it was like, that's my song. And it is her song. But that was a collaboration right there, a cross-cultural collaboration. So there is that symbolism that always affects me when I hear that song. Mm. 
Mm. But being that that, let's consider that an American symbol, I did my own improvisation of that arrangement for the soundtrack to the piece Blossom. And for me, that was also, you know, making intermedia work, work that is not just visual, but also sonic and experiential. And there was something about the player piano aspect, sorry to, to, to stay on that piece, but mm-hmm. there was something about the fact that it was a player piano, which mm-hmm. also had a kind of, I don't know, it signaled some form of old saloon racism, this, mm-hmm. this sort of odd, the, the monkey involved, the, mm-hmm. there was so much about it that it embodied. Yeah. And using new technology too, with the MIDI. Yeah, exactly. In some ways, I look at that as a period piece. You know, it's definitely giving you this um, reconstructionary, early vaudeville vibe and evokes this idea of, you know, lynching in <laughs> terror. But there's also the technology that uh, Spencer just mentioned, is that that wasn't really a player piano. I had to retrofit that to become a player piano. So it's a MIDI system inside. So this is also very consistent with a lot of my work, is that there is are very old elements, literally physically old elements, but also very new elements. And I think Blossom is one of the earlier pieces where I was utilizing antiquated and very contemporary technologies to make the work. Hmm. But using them as tools, I, I don't really hallmark them. I use them as tools. You know, those are hmm. backstories. Those are not like usually up front, per se. Yeah, they're deep backstories. You really have to, they're not things that, if, if they were at the forefront, that's what the work would become about, which is meaningless. Exactly. Exactly. It's the channel to get there. Exactly. I wanted to bring up memorials and monuments and get your take on the sort of situation we're facing right now, whether it's Columbus monuments, Confederate monuments. How are you thinking about monuments? Uh, I mean, I look at the images of all the monuments and memorials that are being embellished. And um, I think it's glorious, to be honest. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, just as art, just as living, performative art, I just think it's glorious. I don't believe art is a static thing, you know? I think even when you make a piece and you think that it's done, it's still not done. If it's a good work, it transcends because times change around it, and that changes the meaning, and that changes the existential nature of that work. And this also holds true for these monuments and these memorials, Mm. is that they were made in a certain time to project a certain image. So for them to be physically altered real time while we're able to watch by the groups of people that were supposed to be threatened by them in the first place is glorious. I think it's full circle. I was listening to someone speak a few weeks ago and they were saying, rather than pull these things down or put them in museums, maybe they should just leave them up and let them become aggregate (laughs) models of all the uh, embellishment and and reactions of the people to them. Um, I don't really know if I have an answer to what happens with all those objects. I think to bury them and hide them is wrong. Mm-hmm. They do need to be historicized in a way they need to be talked about because the minute they disappear is the minute that those histories come right back up. Mm. And you can see it, you can already see that right now. The fact that it, <laughs> we've taken for granted that those were from such a, an era so, so long ago and they really were not even 100 years old, half of them, you know? So I think it's really interesting to see what's going on with that. And as a sculptor and someone who deals with objects and even riffs off of figurative stuff in my sculptures, it's sort of a lesson to see how these things um, emerge and evolve. You you draw on humor so much. Your work often has this kind of wry sense of humor. I'm thinking about the Fat Albert sculpture or mm-hmm. other pieces and irony underlying it. 
do you view humor and irony as kind of a helpful or useful tool for exploring uncomfortable subjects or what is it? Why do you employ humor? I think there's that aspect, but I think there's a step deeper when you get into sort of like black humor, dark comedy, dark humor, where it's a very specific like micro niche of irony and satire. Mm -hmm. It's a way of channeling despair and hopelessness. So it's like (laughs) the bastard child of satire (laughs) and irony. You know, it comes from a very dark place. So, um, you know, when I made the Lock One, Fat Albert, which actually I call Fatal Bert, that particular piece came from a very, very dark space. I mean, it was a knee-jerk reaction to, you know, things that I was seeing around me. And the funny Mm -hmm. thing about it is that I had proposed a Fat Albert sculpture a decade before for another project that had nothing to do with um, how the Lackawanna came around. I didn't get that proposal. I didn't get that one. So, you know, talk that up into my list of failed commissions. But, um, you know, like a decade or so later, after seeing the deaths of so many people televised and watching Bill Cosby go down and learning about the things he did, it put me in a place of deep, deep despair, honestly. And... I, years ago, um, as a grad student, I sort of tried my best not to get too, I guess the word might be sentimental or too emotionally transparent in some of my works because it could do a disservice at times. But sometimes it has to go there because it's so visceral that it comes out and it's beyond you. It's beyond your control. And that was one of those pieces. Mm. We were mentioning music earlier, and and you've employed music. You play the piano. Could you talk about the healing power of performance and music, and particularly hip-hop, which is another interest of yours? Mm -hmm. Speaking to music directly, I think this also relates to how we were talking about monuments, is that for me personally, when I'm playing music with a group of people, I am no longer in control. And the thing that is created is a combination of all of our efforts together real time. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of how I see what's happening with those monuments as we're watching them transform or be taken down and what's going on there. It's a bunch of people's angst and anger and energy channeled into one specific subject at a time. So working as a musician is that way. Also, I work with very talented people. I rely on them in a mm-hmm. great way. And I'm always shocked that they agree to do the gigs with me because I feel like, I'm like, oh my God, I feel so honored you do this with me. And, you know, when I talk to them, I realize that they're really involved. That they're into it. They're into this idea of doing what they do with a different group of people in a different context because they are no longer shackled to the demands of the quote unquote music industry. Mm-hmm. So it is very freeing in that way. And in terms of improvisation and improvising with them, I'm not from the Butch Morris school, so it's not like hard, hard, hardcore improvisation. But our improvisation ends up being part music, part performance, and part visual, because Mm. our performances usually have all of those combined. So, you know, we go as far as to programming video into our instruments. So if we play a certain chord, certain imagery comes up. So there's that type of improvisation as well. But um, for me personally, it's a way of getting outside of my mind and getting out of my own way, which I often can do in the studio because it's such an insular practice. And this is another way to flex different muscles, I guess. Mm, Yeah. Earlier in the season, we had Toni Blackman on. I don't know if you know her, but Mm -hmm. she specializes in hip hop meditation. Right. And I I was curious, do you think about hip hop in terms of meditation? 
I think about hip hop culture in terms of meditation. Um, I always had, that's how the, the mandala works and the floor mm-hmm. pieces came about over 20 years ago was for me growing up, you know, I'm first generation rap music. You know, I grew up, Rapper's Delight was the first rap song I heard. And I heard on the radio. So <laughs> when it came out, <laughs> that's how, not to carbon date myself too much, but that, that's the reality. <laughs> so um, it was, you know, it's like if you are on the forefront of a new genre of music, it's really the voice of your generation. It's something that your parents can't understand and this culture can't, doesn't know what to do with it yet but they're talking to you and you're talking to them and it's your language. And mm. being there while that happened, it was beyond just an aesthetic practice. It was, you know, deeply intrinsic and a, a deeper cultural practice. So, you know, I used to break dance. I used to go down to our quote unquote dojo with the other break dancers and we would stretch and we would do our battles and we would improvise and it was communion. And I feel that hip hop, had that and still has that to some degree, although, you know, it's at a different phase and I'm in a different phase in my relationship to the music, but the culture itself has changed the world. I mean, mm. <laughs> the protests that we've seen, I think are a result of that energy and result of that communion and that way of communicating and the fact that the world is watching the way it does right now and learning not just our verbal language, the, the communicated language, but the body language, yeah. the gesture, all of that is coming from hip hop and mm. hip hop's global takeover of the last 30 years. Much of your work is a reminder of this country's sort of continuing struggle with racism, with racist brutality. How have you been thinking about this moment from that perspective, the inequity, the police violence, the protests, and the calls for social justice? Uh, yeah, you know... Mm. I'm tired. I'm just tired. You know, mm-hmm. we're tired. We're all tired. Um, but we're still in this fight and we're still going to do this thing. And we're going to make these changes that need to happen. But, you know, it's no different for me to talk about it now than me talking about it 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. So when things really started to get hot a few months ago after, you know, rest in peace, George Floyd, I, like many of my contemporaries, were just, you know, our phones could not stop ringing and mm-hmm. buzzing because everybody wanted to hear what we had to say. And I just stopped answering my phone. This was just a new incident, sadly, but it wasn't yeah. a new phenomenon at all. And it still isn't. But I am so happy to see the multitudes of people that have been out in the streets handling their business. And that is not just people of color, that it is, you know, Americans, it's people who want to see change. And it's a generation of people who are coming up who are just so strong and strong-willed mm-hmm. and feeling disenfranchised and they know where to put their energy right now. And it is impressive to watch. I'm happy to see that. I'm happy that I've done my parts as much as I can from the arts industrial complex for years. You know, I was also an educator for years too. So, you know, I taught at Columbia for nine years and I was at Harvard and VCU before that. So I've had a lot of interaction with these generations coming up that are doing, that are out there in the streets and making work about this and hardcore advocates and allies. Yeah. How's it feel to actually have like media paying attention to it though, in the way that, that has shifted? I mean, it, do you think it'll last? I, it- you know, it's important that the media's on it and I'm glad they're on it, but it gets, things get so distorted in the media and right. Your question, the next question is what is the longevity of that? It serves its purpose, but I just, I think it's extremely important that anyone who feels that we are in 
a wrong system, do all the things in their capabilities from their lane to change this. That means policy. That means supporting minority businesses. That means donating to colleges and school funds and scholarships. That means voting down ticket. That means voting in the presidential election. That means everything other than just being in the streets. That's just only part of it. That's just the surface that mm-hmm. grabs the attention. But what do you do once you have the attention? Mm. And that's where I'm at right now. I just, you know, hopefully all those people who are out there put their money where their mouth is, realistically. Yeah. It's August 5th, the day we're recording it. And a few days ago, there was this Axios interview with Trump. <laughs> and and I just, I can't let you go without talking about this. But there's this nuanced language of racism in this moment, mm-hmm. you know, especially from him, obviously. And when when it when he was asked about John Lewis, he suggested there were there were many others also mm-hmm. whose work should be praised, mm-hmm. completely dishonoring the fact that on March seventh, nineteen sixty five, in Selma, his skull was cracked by a state trooper. Yeah, you know, he was clubbed and beaten straight up. Yep, and more than once. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Trump used this technique. With Charlottesville as well, mm-hmm. you know, the very fine people of Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. This sort of weird false syllogism of this is true and this is true, so mm-hmm. I'm not racist. Well, he was out of his depth in the interview in the first place. And yeah. I think one of his defense mechanisms is to just glaze over everything. And then there's also his minimizing of anything that has to do with civil rights, specifically with black people. And I think somehow in his mind to even engage that, if he could, to even engage that would somehow be seen as a loss to some of, you know, his base that needs that racist red meat. They need their dose. So he's developed techniques to just sort of try to minimize or even deny that they even exist. And that was one of those examples. I mean, oh, you know, uh, well, he didn't come to my party, so I don't like the guy. I don't even know the guy. He didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my city. I mean, it's just sort of horrible. But the fact that this is our president, and it's sad to say, but somehow this must be the guy we deserve right now because he's in. And if he comes back again, then we definitely deserve him after all this. Mm. So I only say that to piss people off enough to go out and make a change because this is real. Mm. He's letting people die on his watch. To close, I wanted to bring up intergenerational dialogue, which connects deeply to this. It's an area we badly need to address right now. How are you thinking about dialogue between generations, either in your own work or in your personal life? It's difficult. I mean, you know, it's very hard for me to imagine what a tween, how a tween sees all of this happening right now. I mean, there's just so much information that's moving so fast and their ability to process lots of information quickly is far superior than ours. So I'm sort of wondering, you know, how, how are they managing to put all this together? But I think once again, the history becomes important. There's been all these internal debates about artists should relegate their talk to this type of thing, or, you know, you can't show negativity around black people, or you should only show positive images. And I think you need to show all images. I think artists need to be making all types of everything just to keep the dialogue going. But artists who deal with history have to also show all aspects of that as well. Mm. And I think that every person above a certain age has a duty to make sure that the history keeps going down so it doesn't get forgotten and repeated. Um, And that's the only way to inform the generation that's really going to make the biggest changes. Mm. It's phenomenal to watch what's going on right now. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, the intergenerational thing I've found important for a long, long time. I mean, 12 years ago, we weren't listening to old people. 
So we had no idea what was happening there. Then people took an interest in that. Mm -hmm. The thing now, I think you said it really, really well, which is that, and in talking to my own kids through all of this, is that A, they see the world in a very different way than we do. Mm -hmm. But they also see things very myopically with a certain amount of hubris. Right. It's like they go to YouTube and all of a sudden they're they're a world-class chef because right. they've made one meal. So. And I'm not speaking about my, my oldest son, Ethan, who's a really good cook. But, <laughs> he's but, he's but an the, insanely good cook. <laughs> but, but the idea that, that, that understanding or wisdom is slightly different from knowledge. And right now they can get knowledge very quickly. Right. But wisdom needs to come from the older generation, I feel like. Right. So like you had said, and I, I think it's, it's, it's super important that they're engaging with art because there's nuance and there's exploration. It's kind of like the Talmud, there's not an answer, right? There's multiple questions. And, and so I think that the more this next generation is engaging with the kind of dialogue that is open, like art making, mm -hmm. they have an ability to find a way in that's theirs, instead of being like, just given a small piece of historical knowledge. Mm -hmm. And philosophy and anthropology and things that take time to understand, not just a quick TikTok or Snapchat. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that's that's one of the things that sort of annoys me about looking at art on places like Instagram, where, you know, it's sort of easy to make something look good on that medium, mm -hmm. on, the, on that platform, but you don't really get the full picture. You're, you're only seeing the surface. You're not asking hard questions when you look you're at You're not asking Instagram. hard questions. And, you know, and some work is just surface. That is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> to quote what our president, it is what it is. But... That experiential thing, which takes time and takes a deeper dive mm -hmm. when you're in front of the piece and you're seeing it in 360 and you're hearing it and you're feeling the air around it and it does something to you and it transports you. That's something that can never be replicated on any of those platforms. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, you have a generation that has so little experience with that that they don't, don't necessarily know they're missing that. And that's where it becomes important for the older generations to sort of help and show and expose and get that information to them. But the communication has to go both ways because either side could be hubristic at either moment. So it's really important yeah. to keep those channels open. Mm. So as we emerge from this, as we, I mean, whenever it happens, what's your greatest hope? What What's giving you the most hope for the future? Hmm. Optimally that... We started and when I was talking about, you know, taking time for reflection and that this is a time for constant reflection and perspective for individuals, but individuals within their communities, their communities within their states, in their countries, and then in the world altogether. And I think that's sort of the process that you have to go from the micro and the macro through this whole process. Mm. But when we're out of this moment, that some of those lessons stick and that we don't try to go back to what people considered normal because what was normal was abnormal. And we should evolve through this. I mean, if you go through, you know, a harrowing experience and don't evolve, then it was for naught. Mm -hmm. If you come out and just try to replicate what was there before, then you learn nothing. And then you will repeat yourself again and again and again. I want to be optimistic about that, and I'm glad we're having this conversation, and I hope these conversations, other people are having these conversations. But that is my, that's my wish, is that, you know, we take a deeper stock of where we are in our relationship to this world and each other and come out in a better place and more open. Hmm. Sanford, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you today. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you both. 
Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter exploring the five senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.